0: Our topic now is the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Turn in your notes to page 17, and in the middle of the page, you'll see this section. The Holy Spirit, circumcision of the heart, and the law written on the heart of believers in the Old Testament period before the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. I put a lot in that title because... What what misunderstanding is common in many, many places is that people think there was no Holy Spirit before the New Testament. Others think that there is a Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, but he doesn't do anything in the life of believers until the time of the New Testament or the day of Pentecost. They think that the Holy Spirit has no work of salvation and redemption in the Old Testament and no work of sanctification and holiness in the Old Testament. They think that 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 all starts from Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, forward. And even then they think, many of them think, from Pentecost until the rapture of the church. From Pentecost to the rapture of the church, the Holy Spirit is working in the world, but not before Pentecost and not after the rapture. Those views misunderstand not only the clear teaching of the Bible on the Holy Spirit, which we will see, but also they misunderstand human nature. They think that it's possible that humans, man, they have the ability in their own goodness, their own nature from birth, their own will to choose God and to do what's right in the sight of God. If God just nudges them and woos them enough, then they will do what's right. That's the kind of view that they have of human nature. That we are essentially good people, and we can do whatever we have in our own ability, maybe with a little help from God, but either ourselves or with a little bit of help from God, work together, and then we can accomplish our salvation. This is the way they look at mankind, human nature. That is, in the Old Testament, that's the way it was. And that's how they could say... There's no need for the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Now we have the added benefit of the Holy Spirit, but even then we don't need the Holy Spirit uh, at, at all or very little. This is the way they look at it. However, we do know in the Bible that human nature from Adam's sin onwards is dead, it's corrupt, it's vile, and there is nothing that emanates from our human nature that can be presented to God for our salvation. God has to first change us, give us a new heart, make our hearts tender, hearts of flesh, although naturally they are hearts of stone and insensitive to the things of God. There's no life in our hearts, no spiritual life in our hearts until God first changes our heart. We know this to be true from many, many passages of the Bible, New Testament and Old Testament. So since we know that to be the case, let's see what role the Holy Spirit has In the Old Testament. So we see that the Holy Spirit, He regenerates, that is, He produces a new heart in the Old Testament, and then the people of the Old Testament believe they love God, they honor God, they live for the glory of God. He first changes them, and then they respond in obedience, in repentance, faith, and love of God. This is the way it is. Now let's look at page 17. Firstly, the presence of the Holy Spirit. We can deal with this very quickly. Isaiah, Isaiah 63, 10 and 11 says, But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. Then his people remember the days of old of Moses. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them? Notice there. Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them? They grieved his Holy Spirit, and he put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them. These people are speaking in the time of Isaiah, about 700 B.C., but also before that, they know that the Holy Spirit existed in the time of Moses, in 1500 B.C. The Holy Spirit is clearly present and evident, and the people of the Old Testament, they know that. And even we should know that. If we have ever picked up the Bible and started at the very beginning, it should be quite evident right off the bat in the second verse of the Bible. In the second verse of the Bible, Genesis 1 verse 2. Genesis 1 verse 2. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. The Spirit of God was there in the creation of the world. We know He exists. We know that He is powerful. We know that He is a Creator, Father, Son, and Spirit. All three created the world. And Genesis 1-2 makes that part evident. Therefore, it should not be a surprise to us that if He creates the world, then why can He not recreate what He first created? That is, recreate our dead human heart. He created our human heart perfect in Adam and Eve. Before they sinned, it was perfect. They fell into sin. So can't the Holy Spirit then recreate the human heart after He created it perfect? Can't He recreate it? Of course He can. And that will be necessary for salvation. Now let's see how He does, in fact, uh, recreate. Firstly, circumcision of the heart. From Jeremiah 4, verse 4. Jeremiah 4, verse 4, we read of how it is necessary to have a circumcised heart to escape God's judgment. Jeremiah 4, 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. God threatens His wrath to burn like fire to punish them for their evil deeds. But to escape the wrath of God, He calls on them and commands them to have a circumcised heart. Now this is a figure of speech, of course. The foreskin of males is uh, circumcised, but in the spiritual sense, the heart is circumcised when it is renewed. When it has undergone a change. We have naturally In our hearts, an uncircumcised heart that needs to be circumcised. In our birth into the world, we not only have foreskin, but we also have foreskin on our hearts that prevent us from knowing God properly. And this foreskin of the heart has to be removed. Now, why would God command the people in Jeremiah 4.4 to have a circumcised heart when it was impossible for them to have it the circumcised heart is not a new testament invention yes it does occur in romans 2:28 and 29 the apostle paul speaks of that circumcision that renewal of the heart by the spirit in romans 2:28 and 29 but it wasn't exclusive to the new testament period it's right here God would not command them to do something that was impossible for them to experience when it has to do with their own salvation. If they're going to be saved, they need to have a circumcised heart. As well, in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. If this circumcision is actually going to happen... Who will make it happen? Yes, man, when he hears that he has to have a circumcised heart, he has to have it. There's no doubt. Jeremiah 4.4 commands it. And other places command it. But how is that actually going to be initiated? Who will actually do it so that as a result of it, we will love God and obey God and honor God? Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. Here we read that it is the Lord who circumcises the heart. He is the one who circumcises our hearts and the hearts of our descendants. He is the one who changes our heart And as a result, we love the Lord God. He says, when he circumcises it, it will be to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. In order that you may live. He has to initiate it. He has to actually change it. We don't live spiritually. We are dead spiritually. That's the implication of verse 6. He says, when he circumcises our heart, we live and we love. We live because we were spiritually dead, but when he circumcises that dead heart, he makes it alive. And with that life in us, we are able to love God as we are commanded in the greatest commandment. The first and foremost commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might. So this is what... We see here, notice the sequence of events. Notice the chain of events. The chain of salvation. The sequence or order of salvation. It is God circumcises, then we love and live. He has to circumcise, otherwise we can't love Him. And that shouldn't be new to us. First John 4.19 says the same thing. We love because He first loved us. 1 John 4, 19. We love because He first loved us. Whenever we love God in the true biblical sense, that only happens because God initiated love for us. And this is what Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 is saying, that God initiated love by circumcising us, and then we love Him. That's the chain of events. Then, let's turn to Isaiah. Isaiah. Let's see here now that the expressions... There are various biblical expressions on how we are changed and how we are renewed. And I'd like to show that from these next passages... That these experiences of a circumcised heart or a new heart or God's law written on our heart... These various expressions were actually experienced by the people of the Old Testament. Not all the people, but the saved people, the believers of the Old Testament, that this is what they actually experienced. It's not something that is new in the New Testament. They had it themselves. Isaiah chapter 51 and verse 7. Isaiah 51 verse 7. The prophet will address believers. And notice what he says. 51.7, 51.7, listen to me, you who know righteousness, a people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of man, neither be dismayed at their revilings. Here he's encouraging his people and calling on them to listen to him, the ones who know righteousness, the ones who actually experience God's righteousness, who possess God's righteousness, reckon to their account. He's saying, To you, a people in whose heart is my law. And he's telling those people who have the law of God written on their heart that they should not fear whenever man persecutes and maligns them. Don't fear the persecutions of man. Obey God and follow him faithfully. Another place is Psalm 37. Psalm 37. Psalm 37, 27. 37, 27. This passage is familiar for, for us who read the Psalms. He says, "37:27, Depart from evil and do good, so you will abide forever. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand or let him be condemned when he is judged. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. Here he exhorts us, everybody... And this is written in the time of David. It says at the beginning of the psalm that this is a psalm of David, 1000 B.C. David is encouraging his contemporaries and all successive generations, even before the time of the New Testament, a thousand years before the New Testament. He's encouraging believers to live this way. And he describes these true believers in the face of opposition. He says in 31, The law of his God is in his heart, His steps do not slip. The steps of a believer do not slip into perdition, into destruction. They don't slip into that. They remain. God keeps our feet forever. But where does it start? It starts with the law of God written on our heart. God's law changed us and now we know what pleases God and why Uh, We are different. We know the way we used to be and the way we are now. We know the way we used to think, the way we used to talk and behave before, and now there is a contrast. And what made that contrast? God put His law in our heart. He made us tender and sensitive to the things of God. And these are the people encouraged to persevere because they will receive eternal life in the face of their persecutors. Next, we see. That it is the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit Himself who causes this to happen. We've been saying God or the Lord does this. But who is it Father, Son, or Spirit that actually comes to us personally and changes us? And we'll see it is the Spirit. Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah chapter 59. and verse 21 59:21 21. and as for me this is my covenant with them says the lord my spirit who is on you and my words which i have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your offspring nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring says the lord from now and forever the covenant that god makes is a covenant of salvation the prophets and, and Moses, they call it by different names. They sometimes say the everlasting covenant, the covenant of peace, and even the new covenant. These are various terms to describe this covenant in Isaiah fifty nine twenty one. Well, what is part and parcel of that covenant? He says, my spirit who is on you and my words which I have put in your mouth. "...shall not depart from your mouth, and, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever." He's saying here, contemporary believers in the time of Isaiah, how do we know that? He said right there, from now and forever, from the time of Isaiah and forever. And also he has addressees, he has people listening to him preach listen, and reading his words, the book of Isaiah... So what is their hope? What is their salvation? What is their consolation? But the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Both are mentioned in this verse. They need to hear the Word of God, the Gospel of God. That is, the person and work of Christ. They need to hear about that. They also have to have the Holy Spirit make them understand and change their hearts from being stony hearts to hearts of flesh. To having the hearts that were blank, that had no law of God, In the salvific sense, they had no law of God in their heart, making them sensitive to the things of God. Now they do have that. He's saying that they experience it, and it will also be there, available for your offspring and your offspring's offspring from now and forever. Clearly, this is a a promise preached by Isaiah for his generation and subsequent generations. The Spirit is is as is, is well explicitly mentioned. Another place is Ezekiel thirty six. Ezekiel thirty six twenty six. Ezekiel thirty six twenty six. Ezekiel also has to preach to people of rebellion, and he's telling them as he's preaching repentance and faith to them that when this change occurs, this is how it will happen. Ezekiel 36:26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. God is the giver of a new heart and a new spirit. More phrases, more metaphors for our deadness And the way that we live. The way that we did not love God and now we do love God. The way we disobeyed God but now we do obey God. And what's the change? God gives. If God gives something, it has to be a gift. It's not something we earn. It's not something we we deserve. We merit. We don't work for it. It's not our wage. It's a gift if He gives it. And He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Not only that, but who is the one specifically, personally doing it? Verse 27, I will put my spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Before our conversion, we weren't careful to observe God's ordinances. We didn't really care about it. We didn't really care about God's ordinances, God's laws. But when he changed us, now we are careful, now we want to know, now we ask, now we read, now we study the word of God because the Holy Spirit is within us and he causes us. Notice that word. How is it possible for us to walk in the ways of God if the Spirit causes us to do so? The Holy Spirit Will cause you to walk in my statutes. That's the promise here, not by, based on our goodness, not because we have power within us, ability within us, but because the Spirit makes us, causes us, produces that within us. This is why the New Testament says in Galatians five sixteen and twenty six, the fruit of the Spirit. He didn't call it the fruit of a cooperation between our our natural state and the Holy Spirit. It is the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit makes those things happen in us when He changes us from being dead to alive, from having a hatred toward God to a love of God. This is what He does. Clearly, again, Ezekiel mentions that it is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, notice too from John chapter 3. Turn to John chapter 3. ...that Jesus expected Nicodemus to understand all this. We, we just had a, a little bit of exposure to some of the passages of the Old Testament. There are many more similar passages. But based on what we just heard, Jesus expected... ...based on what we just heard and the rest of the Old Testament... ...Nicodemus to understand this. Nicodemus is a teacher and a ruler of the Jews... He is one who should know this because he's the one who's supposed to study the Old Testament in order to explain the Old Testament to the people. But he didn't. And Jesus confronts him on that. Let's pick it up uh, at verse. Oh, we'll start at verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. John 3, 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. If he's of the Pharisees, he's a teacher, and he also calls him a ruler, one who leads the Jews. This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In verse 2, Nicodemus acknowledges that Jesus is a teacher from God because he works miracles. But that's not enough. It's not enough for us to have this factual, informational knowledge of Christ. We actually have to believe in Christ. Have true faith in Christ. This is why Jesus says in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We can't see because naturally we are spiritually blind. Normally, when we are born in the world, we are blind to spiritual things. And he says... You cannot see spiritual things, the kingdom of God, until you are born again. In Jesus' mind, what's the sequence? You have to be reborn, born again, or born from above. I have a heavenly birth before you can see the kingdom of God. This is Jesus' belief. That first has to happen from God. We, We did not produce our own natural birth, did we? No. It happened because our parents came together. We did not cause our natural birth. Why would we think that our spiritual birth or our spiritual rebirth or being born from above would happen because we did something? That we were good? Or we had some inkling or remnant of goodness in us? We can't imagine that. It has to be initiated by God. In this verse... And this this passage is just like what we just saw in the Old Testament. God has to start it. Nicodemus does not understand. Verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? He's looking at it physically. He's thinking about the way natural reproduction occurs. He's not even thinking spiritually. And yet, he's talking to a spiritual teacher. He just acknowledged that Jesus was sent from heaven. This is how blind and dead people are. Verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, true, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Essentially repeating verse 3. And then in verse 6, He explains what He means. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. When you have a natural birth, you are physically born into the world, then that's only going to have a fleshly and earthly and material existence. It's not going to produce anything good spiritually. But when one is born of the Spirit, then you will have spiritual things. You have to be born of the Spirit. The Spirit, just like Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, Isaiah fifty-nine twenty-one, the Spirit has to produce this rebirth. And then we will see, then we will enter the kingdom of God. Verse 7, Do not marvel I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. He repeats this phrase, born of the Spirit, that this happens mysteriously, miraculously, and powerfully, just as wind goes here and there, mysteriously and powerfully, the Holy Spirit works in the same way and produces rebirth in people. Here and there, this is what he does. Nicodemus, verse 9, answered and said to him, How can these things be? He asked this question because he has never experienced it himself. He asked this question because whatever he read in the Old Testament, he did not read and pray about carefully. He did not seek God carefully when he was reading the Old Testament on these issues. So, verse 10 Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Now, that would have pierced his heart, right? It would have been a a punch in the gut for him. He's teaching the Bible and he should know this. If he doesn't know about how salvation works, what business does he have teaching the Bible to people? He has no business. That's why Jesus says, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? You should know better. You're the one that picks up the Bible and then be, studies it and reads it and teaches it to other people. You should know about this. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen and you do not receive our witness. He says right there clearly, you do not receive our witness. You are not listening. You don't have the ability to listen properly and carefully to believe in everything we're saying. You're looking at all, all of the signs. You're looking at the miracles. You're looking at all of these supernatural things as though it's a show, as though you are going to the theater and it's amazing to you. It's amazing to your eyes and your senses. That's why you are intrigued. You aren't intrigued for the right reasons. Because you don't have the Holy Spirit. 12. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He told him earthly things and made comparison. And he couldn't believe. He didn't believe. And now Jesus is saying, I can't even go straight to spiritual things because there's no way you're going to get it. I use earthly analogies to explain the spiritual truths and you didn't get it. I can't talk straight spiritual with you because you have no comprehension of the connection. That's how blind you are. Now, these are strong words of Christ to Nicodemus. Are they not? When we usually read this passage, I don't think we read it carefully enough because we come away thinking that Jesus was always soft and very sugar-coated in the way he talked to people. But that's not true. It's not true at all. He spoke very directly here and he told Nicodemus clearly several times that he doesn't get it, he doesn't understand, and he should have by now understood. And what is it essentially? That you have to be born of the Spirit and that Nicodemus should have known all this Based on the Old Testament alone. Based on the Old Testament alone. Nicodemus should have understood. Everything Jesus just said to him. But he doesn't. So this is why. We ought to believe. That the work of the spirit. Is not. A late invention. The work of the spirit. Is not something. That only takes place. From the day of Pentecost until the rapture or whatever other misconceptions people have. That's not the way it works. Otherwise, John chapter 3 makes no sense. And also those other passages make no sense. Now, let's turn to Luke 11. Luke 11 and verse 13. Luke 11, 13. This will deal with both our salvation and our sanctification. If we, have the Holy, if we do not have the Holy Spirit, we can ask our Heavenly Father. But if we already have the Holy Spirit, we can have more of His Spirit to help us and to control our life. And this is what Jesus says in Luke eleven thirteen. 13. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit... To those who ask Him. Luke 11 and John 3 are before Acts chapter 2. They are before in our Bibles and they are also before in time. And both in John 3 and Luke 11, John and Luke and Jesus in both places, they all believe that it is possible to have the Holy Spirit change your heart and have the Holy Spirit fill your heart. So that you are able to love and please God the way you should. Day by day. Which is known as salvation and sanctification. Our regeneration and our reformation. We are being changed by God from our conversion. Until our meeting of Christ face to face. This is the way it is. And this happens because the Holy Spirit causes it to happen in us. Otherwise, what's the point of Luke 11.13? And what's the point of John 3 and Jesus' rebuke of Nicodemus? If they couldn't experience these things, all that Jesus would have had to say is, just wait for the day of Pentecost. Just wait for the day of Pentecost when everything changes. He didn't say anything like that, anything remotely like that. He didn't say that because from Genesis until the end of the world, this is what God does to save people. He uses His Holy Spirit to... Control, invade, to cause a dead human heart to come alive. Then in the rest of these notes, just to highlight what's here for your benefit and, and further study. It related to this topic is the hope and resurrection of the dead. The hope and resurrection of the dead. That the Old Testament teaches hope in resurrection. It teaches hope in the resurrection of our bodies. Our bodies are immaterial and material. They have an unseen part, our, our persons have an unseen part and a seen part. The unseen part, which is our spirit, and then the seen part, which is our body or our flesh. We have both. The Old Testament repeats this belief again and again. Several references to that. Then, in terms of resurrection, the Old Testament teaches that people generally, the righteous and the wicked, will rise from the dead. Many references to the righteous and the wicked and examples of resurrection are found in the Old Testament, several of them. Moreover, Jesus' resurrection is predicted several times in the Old Testament. Jesus himself, who is our uh, firstborn from the dead, He is the first fruits of resurrection. He is the first one who rises from the dead immortally, never to experience evil, sin, and death again. Jesus is the first one. But all of this was predicted in the Old Testament, and this is why the apostles teach it in the New Testament. Jesus' resurrection is the precursor to ours. And then, lastly, on page 20 at the bottom... The saints of the Old Testament had a heavenly hope. The saints of the Old Testament had a heavenly hope. They knew that they were on this earth temporarily. They knew that they were sojourners and aliens and pilgrims on this earth. They were here temporarily and that they would live with God forever and ever. With him forever in heaven. They knew all this. They believed this. And they did not live for this world. Some of them were rich, some of them were poor. Some of them were old, some of them were young. Male and female, some were free men and some were slaves. It doesn't matter. They had this heavenly hope. They did not live for this world. They lived for the world to come. They didn't live for peace, progeny, and a pot belly. They did not live for mere human and fleshly things. No. God provided for their needs, but they were living For the life to come. He who has ears to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.